No comment. Well, oh, I mean, the only comment I had there was that you just broke the rule that you're not supposed to do. I mean, with this, as a screenwriter, you said the name of the show in the show. Talk about the Israelites being on the journey. Oh, but <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another full-throated episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague, Ken Hensley, and we are with the Coming Home Network. And if you don't know much about us, please do come visit us at chnetwork.org. We are a network of people who have come into the church from various backgrounds, people who are interested at the church at various levels, and uh, we even have an online community that you can join and talk to people who are in situations similar to yours. So go to chnetwork.org, click on connect and click on the online community. Ken and I hang out there all day and uh, we'd love to see you. Ken, are you ready for another week on the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist? Yes, yes we need to dig in. There's we a lot do. of material here and we may, we may even get cut off. That's fine. Like uh, three words before the end. The, the good thing about this episode and some other episodes that we've done like it in the past is that this is mm -hmm. one of those times where we kind of get the sense where we're not diving in so much on a, a zeroing in a, one little aspect of something, but really kind of feeling the weight, sort of like the cumulative mm -hmm. effect mm -hmm. of of kind of what the early church tells us and what scripture tells us on this issue. Yeah, we have, we have been going on from various angles about, about the Eucharist. And so we decided last week to do some sum, summarizing. We kind of summed up as it were, um, the most important elements of the case for the Eucharist being viewed as a sacrificial memorial meal, as a memorial sacrifice. And this week, we're looking at the real presence of Christ, but there's too much material, so it's going to be this week and next week, okay? Two parts on this. To sum up our um, argument for the real presence. Are you ready? I'm ready, Ken. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's rock and roll. So step one, it began for me, you know, once again, and I realize I come back to this again and again because it's true. It began for me when reading the early church fathers, as well as historians of the early church, I found myself becoming convinced increasingly that the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist was the faith of the church that it had been the faith of the church from the beginning in both East and West, and really all the way up until the time of the Reformation. Now, I've had many conversations with Protestants and evangelicals about this, and it's common, I find, for Protestants who take the Lord's Supper to be a symbolic meal of remembrance and nothing more, what I believed when I was a Baptist. Um, it, it's common for them to argue, or to try to argue, that the early church was you know, Ken, the early church was all over the map on this issue of the real presence. There was no consistent teaching. There were all sorts of variations and views on this kind of thing. No common position. And I don't believe that this can be seriously maintained. It, it, it just can't be. In his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, the great St. John Henry Newman famously said that, and I'm quoting him, history is not a creed or a catechism. So you can't look to history to see things as laid out, A, B, C, D, conclusion. History is not a creed or a catechism. It gives lessons rather than rules. Still, no one can mistake its general teaching. 
Bold outlines and broad masses of color rise out of the records of the past. They may be dim, they may be incomplete, but they are definite. And my conclusion was that if one reads Saints Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambrose, Augustine, if you read these people straight through, then what Newman says here will be found to be true of the Eucharist. That is, bold outlines, broad masses of color will rise out of the records of the past. They may be dim, they may be incomplete, they may not be perfect, but they are definite. They paint a definite picture. And the picture that they painted for me is this the church from the beginning believed that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ received as supernatural food. In fact, St. Ignatius of Antioch referred to the Eucharist as the medicine of immortality. We would never have referred to the Eucharist as having any... Well, first of all, I would have never referred to communion as the Eucharist. Uh, The word was not in my vocabulary, but also wouldn't have understood it to have any kind of properties in and of itself. The, 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 The value was in my own reflection you know, leading up to mm-hmm. taking communion. But also, you know, as you're reading this, I'm thinking about, you know, this is sort of, in a sense, uh, why we have a valuable resource in four Gospels instead of just having the Gospel of Mark and moving straight on to the Epistles of Paul. Like, because Mark explains, you know, the life of Christ in a certain way, and John explains the mm-hmm. life of Christ in a certain way, and Luke and Matthew, you get sort of this big picture of kind of how the the earliest Christians understood what was happening when Jesus came. And you get the same sort of sense when you read. They're not all saying the exact same thing, but you put it all together and you get this pretty clear picture of what they all thought about this particular aspect of Christian worship, the Eucharist. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, that that a picture or Newman's words, broad masses of color arise out of the records of the past. Yeah, you, you get the picture, all right? So now in our first episode on this series that was titled Facing the Fathers, Um, we were able to quote much more extensively because that was the point of the entire episode than we can in this summary episode. But I've picked out a few of the most important early witnesses so that our viewers, our listeners can hear them. And the first is St. Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch in the late first century, early second century. Okay, now again, St. Ignatius was a disciple of the apostle John. He learned his faith from John And one of the things that Ignatius was dealing with in his writings, uh, he famously wrote seven letters to seven churches, many of them the same churches that John writes to in the Apocalypse. One of the things that Ignatius was dealing with happens to be the same thing that the Apostle John was dealing with in his New Testament letters, and that is the heresy of the Docetists. Now, what the Docetists taught from, well, it's from a Greek word that means to seem or to appear. What the Docetists taught was that Jesus only appeared to be real flesh, real human, real blood, that he only appeared to have a body. He only appeared yeah, to suffer. They, yeah. they essentially believed that Jesus was a hologram, which is not un- yeah. un- completely unlike what certain Eastern religions believe about their deities as avatars and stuff. You okay. see them, yeah. and they talk and everything, but the, you wouldn't... You wouldn't be able to put your you'd put your hand through them if you tried to touch them. Yeah, I mean, this is related to Gnosticism. It's related to the Manichees in a way. It's it's related to that whole idea that spirit and flesh are two different things. They cannot mingle. Anyway, he was a spiritual being. He only appeared to have a human body. He appeared to suffer. He appeared to die. 
these things didn't really happen. Well, in response to this, the Apostle John begins his first letter. By the way, this explains much of what he says in that letter, but he begins his first letter by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, in other words, we heard Jesus speak, which we have seen with our eyes, we saw him, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Um, another translation I used to use says that we have looked upon and our hands have handled. That, that was John's point, was to say, who I'm talking about here, you know, he, he was a real flesh and blood human being. Now, within a similar context, when Ignatius writes his letter to the church in Smyrna, and this is written around 107 to 110 AD, so again, very early, St. Ignatius talks about the, docet the docetists. And, well, listen to what he says, because he mentions their view of the Eucharist along the way, and he condemns it. And understanding this passage from Ignatius within the context of docetism is a, a real eye-opener. Anyway, this is what Ignatius said. Now Christ suffered all these things for our sakes, that, that we might be saved. And he suffered truly, even as also he truly raised himself up, not as certain unbelievers maintain, that he only seemed to suffer, as they only seemed to be Christians. A little, little slam there on the side. Um, continuing to quote, For I know that after his resurrection, too, he still had flesh, and I believe that he has flesh now. When, for instance, he came to those who were with Peter, he said to them, lay hold, handle me, and see that I am not a ghost. You see, Ignatius is writing all of this with the, docet with the docetists in mind. And then he goes on, some ignorantly deny him, not confessing that he truly had a body. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which was offered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. So just notice at this point that to one of the earliest, one of the greatest bishops, saints, and martyrs in the history of Christianity, the first, by the way, to refer to the church as the Catholic Church, it was Ignatius, notice that to this man, those who did not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, are conceived to be outside the church. They're conceived by Ignatius to be those who are, quote, perishing in their disputes, unquote. There's our first quote, yeah. okay? But now here's one from Justin Martyr, one of the earliest great Christian apologists. Writing around 150 AD, this is what Justin said, for not as common bread or common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made incarnate by the Word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our, our blood and flesh is nurtured is both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. And that's from his first apology. You know, he's writing around 150. You mentioned that uh, St. Ignatius is writing just a little bit after the turn of the, you know, of the century. So he would have been alive. Most of St. Ignatius's life is uh, is lived during A.D. single digits, meaning that, uh, you know, we often think that, you know, those who thought that perhaps the church went astray after the last apostle died, in order for Ignatius to be talking like this, he would have had to have gone astray during the lifetime of some of the apostles. Yes. In order for Ignatius to be actually speaking yeah. wrongly, 
in this regard. Yeah, for him to be a heretic. I mean, these are early sources. For him to be a student of John sources. and then be a heretic by 107, 110 AD and a, and, and a pretty radical heretic. Okay, but one more quote from St. Irenaeus, the bishop of, of the church in Lyon, southern France, and the first great biblical theologian in church history. Now, he's writing around AD 180, and listen to how he describes the Eucharist. Just as the bread from the earth receiving the invocation of God, he's talking about the Eucharistic prayer again, is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist consisting of two things, the earthly and the heavenly, so our bodies receiving the Eucharist are no longer corruptible, but have the hope of resurrection to eternal life. He's describing the Eucharist again as, the, as, a, as a medicine of immortality, of something that actually helps us, something that gives us grace. Anyway, this point of view continues on through the centuries from there, all the way up really until the time of the Reformation. So as it was becoming clear to me that this had been the faith of the church, again, both East and West, and essentially all the way down to the 16th century, here were a few of the thoughts that, that, that were running through my mind while, while still a Baptist, still a Baptist pastor. St. Irenaeus wrote that the apostles, we've quoted this often, referred to it, that the apostles deposited their teaching into the church like a rich man deposits his money into the bank so that anyone who wants to know what the truth is, wants to know what the apostolic teaching is, can go to the church and get it. They can find it in the church. Well, here I was facing Saints Ignatius, Justin, Irenaeus, and then on and on and on, men who had either learned their doctrine directly from the apostles or from those who were very close to the apostles, and this is how they viewed the Eucharist. This is what I'm facing, okay, as a Baptist. This is how they viewed the Eucharist. And the question that came to me was a simple question, Matt. If the apostles, if the apostles themselves had taught what I taught and what I believed, if they had taught that the Lord's Supper was a simple, symbolic meal by which we remember Christ and we proclaim his death until he returns, if therefore the teaching of Saints Ignatius, Justin, and Irenaeus was an heretical innovation, you know, some heresy, and not what the apostles had taught, how likely is it that we would not find in the early church some massive debate over this issue. This is a key point, and this is a point that, uh, you know, for instance, you'll you'll run into some Christians who try and, you know, maybe their denomination started in the 1800s or something, but they'll say, well, the reason, we've been around since the very beginning, but the reason you don't see evidence of us is because the, uh, the early church eradicated the memory of us. You know, they suppressed everything that we yeah. taught. Well, yeah. if that's the case, then why do we have so much information about the Gnostics uh, that St. Irenaeus yeah. spends his entire efforts in against heresies just ripping to shreds, or the Marcionites, which St. Irenaeus spends a lot of time on too, or the Docetists, as you just mentioned, or um, any number of heretical takes on who Jesus Christ is. These are, yeah. these are the same sources. When you're talking about Justin Martyr or Irenaeus or Ignatius of Antioch, these are the same sources that prove to us that from the very beginning, the early church really did believe that Jesus is God. Yes. These same, same guys. guys are the guys that you go to if you want proof that the early Christians really did believe Jesus is God. Well, they also yeah. believe this about the Eucharist. Yeah. You're exactly right. So if you want to get around this great cloud of witnesses by saying, 
well, they've eradicated the record, you know, they're the ori original can cancel culture, you know, and they right. took all the evidence of, of belief in the real presence. I mean, they took all the evidence of belief in the Lord's Supper as a mere symbolic meal, and they eradicated all of it and made it look like everybody believed in the real presence. Yeah, you're exactly right. It, that doesn't make any sense because, in fact, by one counting, one of the early church fathers lists something like 108 heretical groups that were in existence early on in the church. And in reading the early church fathers, yes, you find them dealing with the Gnostics, the Marcionites, the Donatists, the Nestorians, the Ebionites, the Apollinarians, you know, on and on and on. And so why is there no debate about the Eucharist? And bear in mind also that in the same context of, uh, you know, presenting the Eucharist mm -hmm. as the true flesh uh, of, of Christ, the, what they're actually what it's actually being presented uh, as is a is an argument against people who are denying the incarnation itself, right? So uh, Ignatius of Antioch is defending not only the Eucharist but also the incarnation, kind of in the same breath. That these people who are uh, denying the Eucharist are also de denying the incarnation at its at its most basic theological level. So this is all wrapped up together. For yeah, and that's Christians. why the question that was coming to me was why no debate. You know, sure, there are instances in the early church fathers of the bread and wine being described as signs, being described as symbols, the bread and the wine, but never only symbols and signs. So why isn't there some important bishop, is what I was thinking, some important apologist, some great saint standing up in the early centuries and saying, the real presence of Christ? Are you guys kidding me? This isn't what the apostles taught. This isn't what we learned from John and from Matthew and from Paul and from Peter. This, is, this isn't what they taught. Instead, nothing. You just have this universal kind of faith. In fact, instead, we find historian of doctrine J.N.D. Kelly writing, this is an important quotation, Eucharistic teaching, he says, it should be understood at the outset, was in general unquestioningly realist. That is, the consecrated bread and wine were taken to be and were treated and designated as the Savior's body and blood. And then while the late Yale historian, Yaroslav Pelikan, I'm always thinking this guy has the worst name in history, you know, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what is, I think it's kind of, I mean, it's kind awesome of awesome, name, but I'm thinking personally. of his buddies in junior high, Yaroslav Pelikan, you know, or something, you know, like all yeah. the well, I mean, the Pelican okay. part's cool. Yeah, well, he was a great, so cool. and he's a Lutheran historian, great historian at Yale, Yaroslav Pelican. In his book, The Emergence of the Catholic Tradition, he mentions those who came close to speaking at times as though the bread and the wine were to be understood as signs and symbols. He's referring really to the Alexandrian theologians, mainly Origen, Clement of Alexandria. And you know those guys down there, you know, you got Philo in Egypt, those guys down there were the ones who we're all into symbolizing and whatnot. So anyway, he, he, he mentions those who he says came close at times to speaking as though the bread and the wine are to be understood as signs. He concludes his discussion of the topic with these words, again, an important quotation from a world-class historian. Yet it does seem express and clear that no Orthodox father of the second or third century of whom we have record declared the presence of the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist to be no more than symbolic. So this goes back to some some of the things that we were talking about in previous series on uh, justification, and actually even on baptism, that you might see church fathers who refer to mm -hmm. language that is not in every single instance using, you know, terms that refer to the real presence, but that doesn't mean that they were denying right. the real presence. So for example, I mean, the, the, the great 
you know, example that you have with, you know, there are certain Christian traditions who only baptize in the name of Jesus Christ because Peter at the yeah. sermon in Pentecost says, repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus. You know, they're like, well, they used to baptize in the name of Trinity, but it's clear at Pentecost that, you know, we are only supposed to, be... what, what Peter's doing, he's not denying Trinitarian baptism. He's using the shorthand form mm -hmm. of saying something about mm -hmm. Trinitarian baptism. And, and you find that in the fathers where not every single one of them is saying as explicitly as Ignatius or as Justin Martyr, what's actually happening there. But the language that even they use for shorthand is still consistent with the idea that this really is understood by the first Christians to be something that is a true, real presence of Christ in the Yeah, elements. it's consistent in, in this sense, too. I mean, they can say at times the bread and the wine symbolize or signs, but they also say in other places that this is the body and blood of Christ. The problem on the other side is uh, you, can't have any, you can't have them saying this is the body and blood of Christ. You have to have them only saying th that these are signs or these are symbols. Or as you... you I mean, if you want to get into the hardcore sacramental theology, the Eucharist is a symbol that is what it signifies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So it I works. mean, it, it's the, it, it's, so, it so it is the, it's the symbol of itself, um, you know, and, and it is what it's yes. a symbol of. All that to say that this, in my own conversion, this had a tremendous impact on me. I wanted to move from history directly back to Scripture to examine from, really from scratch, what the Bible was teaching on this issue. But I knew at this point, it's like I had turned a corner um, in my epistemology, if you will. I, I had turned a corner because now as I was going back to the Bible, I knew that unless I found the New Testament authors actually contradicting with crystal clarity what the faith of the early church was, unless I found the New Testament actually and clearly contradicting it, I would have a hard time seeing the grounds upon which I should ignore this vast testimony of Christianity's earliest bishops, saints, and martyrs, a testimony that was, as we've seen, so widespread, so consistently held for so long in both the East and the West. Do you follow what I'm saying? I mean, it's not that I had to find passages. It's not that if I found, it's not that if I didn't find a passage in the New Testament that said flat out, we believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It wasn't that that I needed to find a passage like that to support the early church fathers. What I needed was to find a passage that flatly contradicted that in order to be able to ignore the, wit the witness. I, I would have to have the apostles come out and say, the Eucharist is a symbolic meal of remembrance and nothing more. Nothing else happens. No grace is given. You know, this is not sacramental. Don't get so worked up about yeah. it, guys. You know, you guys are taking this too seriously. You're you're being too scrupulous about receiving it. You know, it's just a we're just talking about you know what it was like to be there with him the night before he died. You know, this is not you do, you don't see anything like that uh, at all. I mean, the only things that you see are people saying take this more yeah. seriously, not take yeah. this less seriously. Okay, let's work through a few of them then. Okay, so the second step for me then was to head straight to First Corinthians chapters ten and eleven, a passage we've looked at a few times. Because this is the most sustained discussion of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist in any of the New Testament epistles. And right away, I found evidence, not direct evidence, but implicit evidence, that Paul thought of the Eucharist as something more than, at least, something more than a simple meal of remembrance. I'm talking about chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, where he issues an interesting warning to his readers, the Christians in Corinth. This is what he says. 
I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. He's referring back to the Israelites of old. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same supernatural food and all drank the same supernatural drink, for they drank from the supernatural rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things are warnings for us. Now, here's what I mean by implicit evidence that Paul thought of the Eucharist as something more than a mere memorial, uh, a symbolic memorial. By, by focusing on the baptism of the Israelites and the supernatural food and drink that was given them to sustain them on their journey through the wilderness to the promised land, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, by focusing on the baptism and the supernatural food, Paul seems to be saying to his readers, this is the implied message, you may have been baptized, you Corinthian believers, you may have your own supernatural food and drink, to sustain you through uh, on the journey but none of this as you can see from the from the illustration of the old covenant israelites none of this guarantees that you will make it to the end if you fail to persevere in the obedience of faith now i want to be clear again this is implicit this is not direct evidence of any kind but but nevertheless paul seems to think of the eucharist as the new covenant equivalent somehow the new covenant covenant equivalent of the manna and of the water, and therefore as supernatural food and drink. Whereas I, as a Baptist, I mean, when I thought of the Lord's Supper, I thought about remembering the Lord's death. I thought about proclaiming it until he comes again. But when the apostle thought about the Eucharist, it seems that his mind went to images of manna falling from heaven and water springing up from a rock. He thought about supernatural food. So it, it seems to me from this passage that Paul thought of the Lord's Supper as the new covenant equivalent or fulfillment or replacement or whatever of the supernatural food and drink given to sustain the Christian, uh, given to sustain the Israelites of old. No comment. Well, oh, I mean, the only comment I had there was that you just broke the rule that you're not supposed to do. I mean, with this, as a screenwriter, you said the name of the show in the show. Talk about the Israelites being on the journey. Oh, but <laughs> okay. So right, right away in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you have this interesting passage where it seems that Paul is drawing a direct line between the Eucharist and the supernatural food and drink that the Israelites received. Because his implicit, me his implicit message seems to be, hey, you guys, you may have been baptized into Jesus Christ. You may have your own version of supernatural food and drink like the Israelites did, but here's my warning. You still may not make it if you don't persevere in faith and in the obedience of faith. And the comment that I would make uh, you know, in regard to that uh, here is you know, the, the picture that was becoming more clear to me as I was discerning all this is trying to understand the most important aspects of, of salvation mm -hmm. history. What is the most important event in the um, in the Old Testament, it's the Exodus. What's the central aspect of that event? Mm -hmm. It's the Passover, right? So then, what is the central event that Jesus gathers everybody around for as he's heading into his passion? You start to see this sort of weight that that what's going on here has to be more than just 
you know, ritual and remembrance. Uh, this is this is salvation history on full display during Holy yeah, and, Week for us. And I mean, and it's just being all unfilled. So the exodus of the old covenant, which brings the people out of slavery in Egypt, becomes an exodus by which we are saved from sin and death. And the baptism of the Israelites, which 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 unites them with Moses in the Red Sea, becomes a baptism that actually unites us. Paul Romans six. Unless we think that we're taking it a little bit too literally, this is exactly how Paul and Peter and you know John talk about this stuff when they refer to the Old Testament. They talk about it in very concrete terms. If you have the eyes to see it, I mean, once you start to see it that way, you're like, oh, they're not just like. They're not just using these as like Aesop's fables to tell you like to not disobey mm-hmm. God. They're like using concrete callbacks to well, as you were saying, um, baptism. And, well, I guess the um, last thing I would say, the last thing I would say about that is that the fulfillment is always greater than the type, the Old Testament type. And so, if the fulfillment of the Exodus is greater, if the fulfillment of the baptism into the Red Sea when Moses is greater, then why wouldn't the fulfillment of the Passover memorial that was held every year? In the in the Eucharist, be greater rather than being just the equivalent that is a simple memorial, which is also an interesting argument for the papacy. If the anointing and the authority given to uh, David and his lineage mm-hmm. is big, then how much greater would the promise that Jesus gives to Peter be? Right? How much more concrete and 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 fulfilled would that be so yeah it's it's the whole it's the answer to a whole lot of sacramental and theological stuff yeah just one more i mean if a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night leading you through a literal desert is great how much greater than is to have the holy spirit living within us and causing us to walk in his ways as we as as we move through the the journey along the wilderness and desert of this land yeah, you know, all this paints a picture that that you know when we're talking about the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist that this is you know God was truly present to his people in all those moments and signs and they were all building to something yes. and and Jesus himself instituted the thing that they yes. were building toward. Um Okay. A couple more passages in 1 Corinthians. A couple of verses later we come to 10 uh, chapter 10 verses 16 and 17 where Paul writes the cup of blessing which we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation, a koinonia, a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And the the simple comment I want to make about this passage is that while what Paul says here certainly would be consistent with the early church's faith in the real presence by saying that we share in the body and blood of Christ, I don't think that this is a good passage to use as as evidence of belief in the real presence, it's not a proof yeah, text. Well, I don't. Right? Even, I mean, you wouldn't. Be, this wouldn't be your one thing. Well, I don't even think it's a good to, verse to, to use. And the reason I don't is because he immediately goes on in verse eighteen to talk about those who eat from the sacrifices made on Jewish altars, participating in those altars using the same word koinonia. How those who eat the sacrifices made on pagan altars participate, same Greek word koinonia, share in. So my point is. Unless we want to say that Paul is teaching the real presence of the pagans on the pagan altars and on the Jewish altars, then I don't think he's he's talking about the real presence in verses 16 and 17. You follow what I'm saying? On the other hand, though, so I don't think 16 and 17 is a passage to demonstrate the real presence. On the other hand, in chapter 11, beginning at verse 27, 
Paul says some things that I have to that I would have to say seem somewhat over the top on the assumption that he thought of the Eucharist as being just a simple meal of remembrance. This is where Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. Some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. And again, while I, you couldn't set forth this passage as, oh, here I have proof of the real presence of Christ. What Paul does say here, it's perfectly consistent with belief in the real presence of Christ. And I think it makes a lot more sense on that assumption. I mean, just think of what he says here. He's saying that to receive unworthily the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is to profane the body and blood of Christ. To receive unworthily is to drink judgment on oneself. Because of this, some are weak, some are ill, some have even died. I mean, it seems extreme for someone who thinks of the Eucharist as a simple time to remember and reflect. Yeah, and again, this this goes back to, you know, I remember as a kid, uh, you know, in various churches and evangelical, you know, kind of non-denominational, mm-hmm. you know, youth group nights, you, you receive communion, you think, well, how, how am I supposed to take this passage? I know that it's a sin to take communion unworthily. How do I know if I'm if I'm maybe doing this unworthy? I mean, it's the kind of thing that haunts you as a kid if you don't have a context for yeah. You know the whole sacramental economy of, of how the church sort of understood how you know confession plays into all, all this, and examination of conscience plays into all this, and what it is that you're actually receiving is uh, truly understood. Uh, you know, it's it's the kind of thing that if you don't really have a concrete sort of theology laid out for you, you kind of don't know yeah, what to do with the passage. It sounds like very um, serious, you know, very serious, profoundly serious, and and those are not words that he attaches to anything else. He doesn't say, you know, if you don't. You know, I don't know what, whatever. If you don't give alms on time, then you know you're going to drink judgment and you're going to die. Um, why? Why does he say that about the Eucharist? You know, why does he use such extreme language? And my point here is, is simply this: as an exegete, I would not say again that this is proof. In fact, nothing that Paul says in this chapter is proof of the real presence of a belief in the real presence. While everything he says in this chapter is entirely consistent with the faith of the early church. And I would have to say in chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, where he draws this implicit connection between the Eucharist and the supernatural manna and the, the water from the rock, that actually supports the faith, of the, early church, the faith of the early church. And certainly, nothing in the chapter contradicts it. But weren't you making the point of right before we went live, live here that, that you wouldn't expect, I mean, given the nature of the, of the New Testament documents, you wouldn't necessarily expect them to explicitly come out and state everything. Well, I think that's partly because of how you understand, you and I both understand um, how the faith is passed on mm-hmm. as Catholics differently than we would have understood it as you as a Baptist, me as a Methodist or a Nazarene. I would have needed to see, you know, if it's it, if it's not in the Bible, well, I mean, the Church of Christ, the Rest- Restorationists, you know, kind of have this saying, you know, where Scripture speaks, we speak, mm-hmm. where Scripture is silent, we are silent. And that's sort of this, uh, under this assumption that in the Bible— um, Paul basically explains everything you need to know about how to be a Christian, when in fact what Paul is explaining is how 
uh, you stupid Galatians got it wrong about circumcision, or how you uh, stupid Corinthians have gotten out of whack with your tongue speaking, and like all these other things. Uh, you know, they're occasional letters, they're corrective letters. The the core of what Paul is addressing is almost invisible, and we only see it by sort of you know the way yeah, that it's criticized. Uh, by being done wrongly. So we, this whole body of what the church is and how the church lives and how the church worships, we kind of only see in the ways that it sort of leaks out wrongly by the way that the Galatians or the Corinthians or the Thessalonians are just yeah, that, yeah, slightly that, off that's in their a good understanding angle. of it. That's a good way to say it. The way that I've often said it, to put like the other side, the way I've often said it is that, is that the substance of the apostolic teaching is something that was communicated to the churches they founded and it was known in those churches, and it was passed down and taught, you know, as Paul says, you know, take these things you've heard from me and, as, and commit as them Paul to faith. Paul says to Timothy, uh, this pattern of sound teaching. Yeah, guarded by the Holy Spirit, committed me. to faithful men right. who will teach other. So the, the full teaching is something that is known in the churches and lived in the church's life and its liturgy and its, and its worship. And that this teaching is reflected in everything they wrote. It's reflected in their in their letters, but none of their letters, but their letters are not about describing the theology. Just like you don't find Peter just jumping up at some point and saying, "By the way, we believe in 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 a one God eternally existing as three divine persons." You don't find them jumping up and defining theology, and so you see echoes of it. You see echoes of it. Yeah, well, Ken, I mean, if people wanted to try and, you know, 200 years from now, understand your relationship with your grandchildren, uh, they might bring out the writings of Ken and say, well, I don't know much about their relationship, but it seems they did focus an awful lot on birthdays. Yeah, I just see birthdays. In Ken's family. Because the only writings that you yeah. might have, you know, for some of yeah. your kids are just birthday cards, right? You know, like what they seem to be obsessed with birthdays, you know, everything else didn't really matter to mm -hmm. them all that much. But from the text you know, from the the original manuscripts. We seem seems like Ken was obsessed with birthdays when it came to his family. When in fact, the substance of what your relationship was was in every interaction that you had and it, all the all the things that you passed on from the various conversations yeah. and the, you know, the walks that you took together and things like that. And you know, that that's the substance of what Timothy received is a lot longer than the few chapters we have in First and Second Timothy from Paul. Okay, um, I want to do step three, and then we'll close down. I know we're going a little bit long today, okay? So step one was the fathers again, and the realization that this is what the church believed. Step two was going to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and finding that while he doesn't say anything explicit by which I could say I proved the doctrine of the real presence, Everything he says is, is consistent with it, consistent with the teaching of the early church, and he certainly says nothing to con con contradict it. Okay, a third step for me was coming to see that the, that the very idea of the Eucharist being a miraculous meal in which bread and wine are transformed into the body and blood of Christ and received as supernatural food, that this idea, as strange as it may seem to modern ears, wouldn't be strange at all in biblical terms. In fact, it, it was coming to see that this would fit a pattern of miraculous meals that we can see throughout the Old and New Testaments. Um, and just to rattle off quickly, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah multiplies a small amount of meal and oil to feed a poor widow and her, and her son throughout the entire time of a drought. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha meets a woman whose husband has died and whose children are about to be sold into slavery to pay off her debts. 
she, all she has to her name is one little jar of oil, we're told. Well, Elisha commands her to collect vessels from all of her neighbors. She goes to her neighbors, give me every pot you have, every jug you have. He, she brings them home, and Elisha miraculously multiplies the oil in her one little jar to fill every vessel she can find. In that same chapter of 2 Kings, chapter 4, Elisha miraculously multiplies a few barley loaves to feed a hundred, uh, a hundred hungry disciples. And then when we come to the New Testament, we find Jesus transforming water into wine. I mean, incredible miracle, taking water and changing it into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. And then later on, Jesus takes five loaves, two fish. He blesses them. He breaks them. He miraculously multiplies them to feed thousands of men, women, and children. And then, here's really sort of the epitome of this whole thing, something I'd never noticed before as well. When the gospel writers describe our Lord's actions at the Last Supper, they consciously pattern those actions, their their description of those actions, after his actions in the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And what I mean is this. They use exactly the same four verbs. He took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke it, and he gave it. Which raises the question to me, why? What an an interesting question. Why did the inspired authors of the Gospels consciously pattern Jesus' actions at the Last Supper after his feeding of the 5,000? Why? I mean, did they, is this evidence that they viewed the Last Supper as another in this pattern that stretches all the way through the Bible of miracle meals? That there was something happening at the Last Supper? There was some kind of a miracle taking place at the Last Supper? Did the apostles believe that when Jesus said, This is my body, this is my blood, that he wasn't exactly speaking figuratively? or only figuratively, <laughs> you know, it just raises these questions. Because why, why did they pattern it like that? Why did they use the same verbs? Why did they make the Last Supper look and sound like this miraculous feeding of the 5,000? Again, this is something the fathers of the church believed. In fact, I, I, I'll close here with a short quote from St. Augustine, who famously said, Christ was carried in his own hands. When referring to his own body, he said, this is my body, for he carried that body in his hands. You know, you you talk about <clears throat> why wouldn't the the pattern of miraculous meals in the Old Testament, why would we think that here at the Last Supper, well, he couldn't have done that, right? Um, you, you fast forward, um, or I'm sorry, you rewind. So you're looking at John 6 in the discourse where Jesus is talking, you know, so explicitly about this teaching of the bread of life and you know, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. If you rewind to the beginning of John's gospel, just a few chapters before, the real crazy thing that Jesus does, the real miraculous thing, is what John says in the in the opening one. <laughs> statement. Right, he says, you know, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Uh, and so the word of God, I mean, how does God speak? I mean, how does God create? He speaks into existence. He, how does light come into being? 
God mm-hmm. says, mm-hmm. let there be light. You're telling me that God says, let there be light, and it happens? And I'm supposed to believe that Jesus says, this is my body, and it doesn't happen? Or it can't happen. You know, I mean, there's, yeah. or it can't happen. You know, there's, there's, there's that connection that, that John is trying to make at the very beginning mm-hmm. and remind us that the Lord of creation, through whom all things are made, is the one who's telling us all these things about the bread of life and that he is the bread of life. He is the new manna. He is, you know, the, he, we, we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood and his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. I mean, this is all the weight of, I mean, no one of those texts mm-hmm. alone really did it for me. It was just sort of this cumulative weight of all of them that just starts to paint this picture that, that my theology as I had it had helped me a lot. But it was missing some key components uh, to hold, to round out the whole picture about what was going on in Holy Communion, you know, and I, or at least what was meant to go on. Yeah, and this issue of mystery, you know, referring to the Eucharist as a great mystery, referring to all the sacraments as mysteries, I guess, it, which is how the East uh, Eastern yeah. Christians tend to. Re- they don't, they don't, they're not like us. They don't need like fancy words like transubstantiation. They're just like, yeah. It's him. Yeah, they're not like, hey, let's look, let's look into Aristotle and see if we can find some categories that will help us understand. When, when I think of it, when when God speaks material into existence, the material creation, I mean, here you have an eternal spirit speaking a material world into existence. I have no comprehension of, the, of how that happens. That's total mystery to me. And in the same way, it's total mystery to me how second person of the Blessed Trinity becomes hum, is incarnate as a human being takes flesh. Well, it's the same thing. I have no idea how bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, but I know that this is the faith of the church. This was the faith of the church from the beginning. And so far, as we've seen here, there's nothing in the New Testament so far. That's why we have to do this in two rounds. We'll be here next week too. Mm. There's nothing that contradicts it. And everything said is consistent with it if it doesn't explicitly say it. Right. Well, and, uh, you know, that's, you kind of got into the Ronald Knox argument there for a little bit. You know, when people asked him why he would be, you know, go out, believe all these crazy things and become a Catholic, he said, well, really, the crazy thing is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you can believe that, then all the other stuff is a cake, a cakewalk. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, well, we've covered a lot and we've gone a little longer than we usually go. But I mean, you can see why we had to split this into a couple pieces. But uh, Ken, I'm excited about where this is going. And we are really you know, it's all kind of coming to a head, and hopefully the picture is getting a little bit clearer uh, as to you know why Ken and I believed what we did, and why that was good, but it was still it wasn't full enough, uh, and and how we kind of came to understand what the fuller and fuller picture was. Uh, if you appreciate this conversation, if you'd like to participate, um, then definitely go to chnetwork.org, comment wherever you like, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share. But if you want to get into the conversations that Ken and I actually check up on more and and comment on, head to the Coming Home Network community, chnetwork.org, and then click on Connect, and then click on the online community, and we would love to connect with you in there. In the meantime, Ken, thanks a bunch. We'll talk to you next week.